I invite you to continue meditating while I continue the talk. This morning we talked about the two types of causes of suffering. Those that respond simply or will go away simply by looking at them. And those that require what the Buddha calls the exertion of a fabrication. I remember from last night we talked about three kinds of fabrication. I mentioned them just now. Bodily fabrication, which is the in and out breathing. Verbal fabrication is directed thought and evaluation, how you talk to yourself. Mental fabrication is perceptions and feelings. And so when a particular craving comes up, some of them will re respond only if you engage in these three kinds of fabrication. Now it's important to remember that these three kinds of fabrication are described in two different contexts. In the context of meditation, they're defined in the terms I just mentioned just now. Bodily is the breath, verbal is directed thought and evaluation, mental is perceptions and feelings. There's another context where the Buddha talks about how bodily, verbal, and mental fabrication have an influence on your rebirth. In those cases, they're basically any bodily action, any verbal action, excuse me, any, any intentional bodily action, any intentional verbal action, any intentional mental action. There's some people who say that these two different contexts are radically different but it's a lot more fruitful to look at them as being connected. In other words, when you're looking at your meditation and seeing bodily verbal fabrication, mental fabrication on the level of meditation, you're also seeing the basis for how do you act in bodily karma, verbal karma, and mental karma in the larger context. Because in order to do any bodily karma, you have to breathe. So every bodily action starts with breath. Any verbal action will have to start with your thinking to yourself about what you're about to say. And any mental karma has to start with feelings and perceptions, which means that meditation is a good laboratory for seeing these processes that can have a long-term influence, but you can see them as they actually function in the present moment. And in exerting them properly, the Buddha describes what a five-step program. Unfortunately, there's no name for this program. If there were a name for it, people would probably know it better. But it's something that recurs again and again and again in the Pali Canon. If you really want to understand something and get beyond it, there are five things you have to notice about it. Say we have a sensual craving. The first thing to do is to see its origination. In other words, how does it arise? And when the Buddha talks about origination, he's usually not talking just about the fact that things arise, but how. And the how usually starts with something in the mind. What mental action sparks this? Like when you, you see something attractive, what in the mind goes for it? And John Lee talks about this a lot. He said there are these currents in the mind. And sometimes the mind is sitting around, it's getting bored, and thinks, I'd like to lust for something, or I'd like to be angry about something. And then you go out and look for something. This is, this is how Amazon works. <laughs> it's also how hate radio works. You haven't worked up about something, you turn on a particular radio station. So you have to say, what is it in the mind that sparks this desire? What is the mind in the mind that would get me to go for this thing? But then at the same time, you also see, well, how does it pass away? When that initial spark passes away, you'll see that this particular emotion will also pass away. Sometimes we feel that we have an emotion that lasts and lasts and lasts for hours. But you have to realize, okay, it, it arises, it drops away. And then you stir it up again, and it drops away, and you stir it up again. And then the question becomes in the third step, after you've looked at the origination and passed away, what's the allure? Why do you keep digging it up? What do you find attractive about this particular emotion or this particular line of thought? 
And this is where you have to be really honest with yourself because a lot of times these things have an appeal that we don't like to admit to ourselves. Like say you have a lot of anger and you say, I really, I really wish I could get past my anger. Well, what is it that the mind likes about it? And in doing this analysis this is where it's useful to think of the mind as a committee. You've got lots of people in there. They have all their different opinions. There may some members of the committee don't like the anger, but the other members of the committee find it. You know, there's a sense of power. There's a sense of, okay, I can assert myself now. I've been mistreated, so I have the right to mistreat in return. <laughs> then you think about how outrageous somebody's behavior is, and you say, well, that gives me, gives me carte blanche to be a little bit outrageous myself. And you know, so your sense of shame and compunction just go out the window. And there's a sense of kind of being liberated that will come with that sometimes. So there's an appeal. And you have to admit to yourself, well, this is the appeal. This is why I like this. And then you look at the drawbacks. And this is where you use perceptions and directed thought and evaluation to describe to yourself, okay, if I actually follow through with this, where is this going to take me? And one of the big sets of drawbacks that the Buddha has you concentrate on are those three perceptions we mentioned earlier. The perception of inconstancy, stress, not self. Anichang sometimes translated as impermanent, but it's it's anicca is the negative of nicha, and nicha doesn't mean permanent; it means constant. And this is something you can actually see. I mean, you can, you know, you, you know for instance, that um, basically mountain. Uh, I'm just thinking about the mountains down in Southern California. No, no, so just think about building your house on a mountain. So you found a nice mountain someplace and you say, okay, I know, I know that Mount Hood is going to blow someday, but probably not in my lifetime. And if they allowed me to build a house on Mount Hood, I'd, I'd like it. I would have a nice view. But, um, so the fact that, that it's impermanent really doesn't have much of an effect. But if you're telling yourself, okay, this is inconstant. It's something I can't depend on. Then you're beginning to realize, okay, no, this is, this is more problematic. It's like building a house on sand. You know that it's going to have trouble pretty quickly. That's the perception that the Buddha wants you to look at. How constant is this thing that you're, you're holding on to? And you realize, well, you already saw it. You saw it coming and going, coming and going. How can you depend on something like that? So that's the first perception, anichang, or inconstant. The second one is stressful. It's like sitting on a chair with one of the legs not quite even with the others. You're constantly having to put an effort into making it, making it stable, even though it doesn't want to be stable. So there's stress involved in that. And finally, if something is inconstant and stressful, is it worth claiming as yours? Now, the Buddha's not asking you to take a position on whether or not there is a self, but he's saying that it's not self because it's not worth it. You have the choice to identify with this or the choice not to identify with this. And given that it's inconstant and stressful, why would you choose to identify? Back up a second. Looking at it as stressful. Again, this morning I complained about the translation as unsatisfactory. The implication of that, that perception sometimes is, well, if you only could learn how to be satisfied yourself with it, it would be okay. And the Buddha is not saying that. It's inherently stressful. There's stress built. It's, it, there's a difficulty that's built into holding on to something like this. So why hold on? And then you're passing a value judgment at the end. It's not worth it. That's how you let go. So that's how you look at the drawbacks. And then you finally compare the drawbacks with the allure and realize that the allure is nothing compared to the drawbacks. That's when you let go. So that's the Buddhist five-step program. Look for the origination. Look for the passing away. Look for the allure. And then look for the drawbacks. 
until you see that the drawbacks outweigh the allure, and then you develop dispassion for it, and that's how you let go. That's the escape from what that was. And that's that's how you abandon a particular type of craving, which gets us into the third noble truth. Turns out the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, is the abandoning of the three types of craving. In other words, as you're performing the duty with regard to the second noble truth, that is the third noble truth. And the word listed as the remainderless dispassion, cessation, giving away, giving back, release, and lack of nostalgia for that craving. In those words, dispassion is when you realize this activity that I'm engaged in is not worth it. It's like fixing a certain kind of food and then realizing that it's really bad for your health. So you say, well, why do I fix this food? I, I, I can stop. And when you, when you no longer have passion from creating that kind of food, it's going to stop. That's how dispassion is followed by cessation. The giving away and giving back, those seem to re apply to the giving away as the giving away of even the path that you were following up to that point. And we're talking about holding onto the raft to get to the other side of the river. Okay, you've got to the other side of the river. You have to let go of the path too in order to get on the bank. So that comes to a point where, okay, you've got these great insights that helped you see through these things. You have to let go of the insight after it's done its work. Giving back is when you realize you've been laying claim to all these things as yours, trying to manipulate them in the way you want them to, but they really don't belong to you. So you give them back to nature. Release, it's like you let, you give them their freedom. Not only are you freed by this process, but they, they are freed as well. It's like you had all these little house dwarves that you've been enslaving. And you finally, at the end of the movie, you let them go. And then lack of nostalgia, analia, means you don't miss them anymore. If you find that you're giving up something and you still have some nostalgia for it, okay, you haven't really let it go. When you feel like I'm really well rid of these things, that's when you're totally free from them. Now, the ending of passion, ending of aversion, and ending of delusion, the Buddha equates with the, the realization of nirvana. And what's interesting in the forest tradition, they make a distinction between the realization of nirvana and nirvana itself. As you have that moment when you realize nirvana, that the they call a phenomenon, and it's an object of the mind. But then once that moment has passed, and there's a total experience in the body, that's something else entirely. That's the ending of all phenomena. And that, that's, that's the state of what they call the, the karma that has led to the end of karma. The word nibbana itself means the extinguishing of a fire. Now, coming to this image from Western, a Western point of view, I think, well, there must be total extinction, total nothingness. When the fire goes out, there's nothing there. In the time of the Buddha, they actually had this image of fire being a, an element or a property or potential that existed in nature. And when it gets aggravated, the fire shows itself when it's provoked. And then when, you, when the propagation stops, it goes back to its latent state. And once, once it's aggravated, the fire will continue burning as long as it has something to cling to. And you know, it clings to its fuel, and the fuel is its food. And the thing, once it's clinging to the fuel, then it is trapped in the fuel. But it's not the fuel holding onto the fire, the fire is holding onto the fuel. And so the image there is, okay, if the fire could let go, it's freed. 
in the same way when the mind lets go of its attachments, it's not that the aggregates are clinging to you, you're clinging to them. And so when you let go of them, then you are freed, they're freed. Both sides are free. The, the analogy breaks down because the sense of fire could you know, get started again. Whereas once you've totally released, okay, there's nothing, no potential in the mind to go back and cling again. We're talking here about the ultimate state of ultimate stage of awakening. We mentioned earlier that you know you are defined by your attachments. A person who is let go in this way can no longer properly be described because people are properly described by their attachments. This is no longer a being, which is why they say an arhant after death cannot be described even as existing or non-existing or both or neither. Because the being, because the R at that point is undefined. However, nibbana is a state, and the state is not defined by its um, by attachments. And so the Buddha very clearly says that it's some, it, it is there really is nibbana. It's a truth. Um, it can't be properly described because it just lies beyond the, the realm of language. But it can be described through metaphors, and through the different metaphors that the Buddha uses to describe nibbana, we can sort of sort out that there are five characteristics. And the reason he talks about Nirvana, of course, is because it is the goal. He wants you to have a sense of that this is something worthwhile. Even though it can't properly be described, he'll give you these metaphors to give you some hints. The first metaphor is that it is a type of consciousness which he calls consciousness without surface. The image he gives is of a light beam. The question is, okay, there's a house with a window on the east wall and nothing and a wall on the west side. And when the sun rises, the light beam comes through the east window. Where does it land? It lands on the west wall. What if there's no west wall? It's going to land on the ground. What if there's no ground? And in those days, I believed that the ground was supported by water, so it's going to support. It's going to land on the water. What if there's no water? It doesn't land. And that's that's conscious without surface. In other words, it's conscious without an object. And just like a light beam that doesn't reflect off of anything, it can't. Its location cannot be found, but it still exists anyhow. The Buddha often talks about how the arahant cannot be located. That, that, that connects with another one of the attributes of Nibbana, get to it in a minute. So there's, it's, it is a type of consciousness. It's not blanking out. It's not a state of nothingness. It's, it's true. In other words, it doesn't, in the sense that it doesn't change. It's, it's the ultimate truth. It's totally undeceptive. It's blissful. Even though there are no feelings there, there's an innate bliss in the mind that is totally free from restrictions, which is the fourth quality of Nirvana, which is the freedom. In fact, this is the quality that's most emphasized, that this is what the image of Nirvana means, the released fire. The Buddha often uses the word release also to describe it. But it's released from any kind of restriction. Free from passion, free from aversion, free from delusion free from the constraints of space and time. And finally, it's excellent. It's, it's the best thing around you. As a John Mahabhava used to say, if you could take Nirvana out and show it to people, people wouldn't want anything else. That would be the only, the only item on the market that would sell. <laughs> so those are the qualities of Nirvana that, that, that the Buddha states as the goal. It's, it is a type of unlimited consciousness. It's true, it's blissful, it's freedom. And it is excellent. 
So that's the third noble truth. Now the path to that noble truth is the fourth noble truth. Let me, I'll give you a short description and then we're gonna break for questions. The Buddha here uses the image of a path in the sense that by following the path, you do not cause Nirvana to happen because Nirvana after all is unconditioned, it's uncaused, but the path will take you there. And the traditional image is of a road that goes to a mountain. You follow the road, it gets you to the mountain. The road does not cause the mountain, but by following the road, you get there. It's composed of eight factors. Right view, which is seeing things in terms of the four noble truths. Right resolve is when you resolve on renunciation, resolve on non-ill will, in other words, goodwill or equanimity, and resolve on harmlessness, in other words, compassion. In other words, once you once you realize, okay, you're you're causing suffering by these actions of craving, and you have to, by your unskillful desires, you have to work on skillful desires to replace them. That's the first part of wisdom. So you have right view and right resolve are the, are the wisdom or discernment factors of the path. Then you have three virtue factors. There's right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right speech is not telling lies, not um, using harsh language, not using divisive language. Sometimes that's translated as slander. But slander is basically lying about somebody. Whereas here, divisive language could be true, but you're saying it to divide people from one another. Like, you know, like suppose you, know, you wanted to become friends with you. I'm afraid of what's going to happen if you two become friends. So I start telling, telling you, you know, really nasty things about her. They may be true, but my intention is wrong. It's, it's just to break up a potential friendship or make up a friendship that's already there. That's, that's wrong speech in terms of divisive speech. Harsh language is when you use harsh speech you know, specifically for the purpose of hurting somebody's feelings. And then finally, the last one is idle chatter, which is when you open your mouth and don't really know what's going to come out until you've opened it. Um, you speak with no real purpose at all. Of these four, only one of them is has a precept against it, which is a precept against lying. And lying is defined as misrepresenting the truth. You know X to be true, but you say X is not true. Or you didn't see Y, but you said that you saw Y. That would be that would be a breaking breaking the precept. The other three types of wrong speech do not have precepts against them. Because um, you know the precept against lying means across a board, no cases, no 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 white lies, no harmless lies, no whatever. You just cannot misrepresent the truth. However, in terms of divisive speech, you know, if I know that somebody is a predator and he's beginning to circle in on somebody else, I, I, you know, for the sake of the Dharma, I would warn the other person. That would not be wrong speech. In the case of harsh speech, sometimes you have to speak in really strong language to get through to some people. And the Buddha himself sometimes called people you know, worthless person. Basically, to point out to the other monks that we're listening, you know, okay, this person's behavior is beyond the pale. It's not. It's unacceptable. So again, if you're doing it for the purpose of the dharma, it's it's okay. But you have to be really clear about your motivation. And then finally, idle chatter. If there are precept against idle chatter, where would we be? <laughs> <laughs> but I 
there's one I described, social Greece, or it's a little bit of chatter that keeps keeps the friendships going, keeps the, the work team going, like I said, that's okay, because there is a purpose to it. It's when you open your mouth and you're not really clear about what's going to come out until you, you've said it, that, that would be the wrong, that would be idle chatter. Then finally, there's wrong right livelihood, which and this of the factors factors of the path is one that has the biggest definition, is that you avoid wrong livelihood. <laughs> now there are some examples given in the canon. There's certain kinds of selling that you don't do. You don't sell poison. You don't sell animals. You don't for to be killed for food. You don't sell weapons. You don't sell intoxicants, and you don't sell human beings. So you avoid those kinds of trade. There are other cases where the Buddha said, okay, there are occupations that are perfectly okay, but if you do them in a dishonest way, that would be wrong, wrong livelihood. And there are a couple of cases where people come and specifically there's one is an actor and two is a professional soldier. They come to see the Buddha and they say, my teacher told me that as, as a professional actor, if I get people to laugh, I will be reborn in the heaven of laughter. What does the Buddha have to say about that? And the Buddha says, don't ask. He says, no, I really want to know, don't ask. No, I really want to know. And the tradition in, in India at that time is if you ask three times, okay, I meant you were sincere. So the Buddha said, okay, if you try to give rise to a passion, aversion, and delusion in your audience or in yourself, then as an actor where you're going to die, you go to the hell of laughter, which is very different from the heaven of laughter. <laughs> in the heaven of laughter, everybody laughs with you. In the hell of laughter, everybody laughs at you. Okay. And so the actor breaks down and cries. And see, the Buddha says, "See, that's why I told. That's why I said not to ask." And the actor says, "Well, it's not. No, I'm not crying about what you said. I'm crying about the fact that my teachers lied to me for so long." And then, with the case of the professional soldier, it's very similar. He asks three times, and the Buddha finally breaks down and says, "Look, if you're in the midst of a battle and you're trying to kill other beings, and if while that, that while you have that ill will, you want to kill them." You, you get killed, you're going to, instead of going to the heaven of heroes who died in battle, you're going to the hell of heroes who died in battle. So again, soldier breaks down and cries because he'd been lied to by his teachers. I think these two examples, well, the first example, of course, is one of the reasons why you don't see actors and actresses in Hollywood palling around with terabyte ones. <laughs> That's right livelihood. You avoid that kind of livelihood. And then finally, there's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Sometimes you hear that it's a choice between right effort and right concentration on the one hand and right mindfulness on the other, which, which right mindfulness is an open, open, accepting, allowing state of mind, whereas right concentration, the right effort are basically more, more narrowly focused and trying to get rid of certain states of mind to focus on others. That's basically saying we have a choice between a, a six-fold path and a seven-fold path. And the Buddha never makes that distinction. Right mindfulness leads to right concentration. Right effort leads to right mindfulness. Right mindfulness leads to right concentration. They're all part of a whole. The right, mind, right effort is basically trying, giving rise to the desire to abandon or to prevent unskillful qualities from arising. Giving rise to the desire to abandon any unskillful qualities that have already arisen giving rise to the desire to develop skillful qualities. And then when skillful qualities are there, you give rise to the desire to maintain them and develop them further. Notice desire, 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 desire. This kind of desire is skillful. Sometimes you hear that you know, the definition of 
even for non-becoming is wanting certain net nasty bad mind states to go away. The Buddha never defines it that way. Wanting bad mind states to go away is actually part of right effort. And then you try to carry through with that. You make the effort to make these things happen. And to do that, you, you also develop right mindfulness, which is you, you develop a foundation of mindfulness, either the body in and of itself, feelings, mind, or mental qualities in and of themselves. And you try to maintain that focus. You are ardent, alert, and mindful. Ardent is basically right effort. In terms of the body, anything unskillful comes up related to the body, you try to abandon it. Anything skillful comes up, if it's not there yet, you try to give rise to it. And once it's there, you try to maintain it. So right effort is contained in right mindfulness. And then alert means basically seeing what's actually going on while it's going on, being able to identify it clearly. And then if you see that something, and then right mindfulness is keeping something in mind. In other words, keeping your topic in mind. And then if you see that something unskillful has come up, you remember, okay, what have I done in the past or what have I learned in the past about getting rid of unskillful qualities? Something skillful comes up, what have I learned in the past about maintaining these skillful qualities? That's what you keep in mind. So that you bring your active memory to focus on the present moment. Years back, I heard a famous piano player from uh, was a classical musician. He was giving his sort of farewell tour of the United States. And he was known as being a very cerebral artist. And someone asked him, well, what is it like as you're playing the piano? He talked about how when you're playing the piano, on the one hand, you have to listen very carefully to what you're doing. You also have to remember, what is the metal, what, how have I been developing this particular interpretation of this piece up to now? And is my, what I'm playing right now, it's just a fit in with the interpretation that I've been building here. And where is it going? What should I do? Should I continue this particular interpretation or should I try to develop it in a direction? Should I keep it going? That's basically the three functions of mindfulness. You remember what, you, what you've learned. You're focused on being clear about what you're doing. Ask yourself, where is this going? So it's not just being focused on the present moment, but it's being focused on the present moment, using useful information from the past, and also asking yourself, where is this leading? All of that is right mindfulness. Right, Anton? <laughs> and then finally, where it should be going is getting the mind into right concentration. As the Buddha said, the, the topics or the themes of right concentration are the four foundations or four establishments of mindfulness, which are these, this, these processes. And the, and the Buddha defines right concentration in terms of the four jhanas or states of absorption. In the first jhana, you are focused on one object, in this case, would be the breath. You're, there's a sense of ease or, or pleasure, and there's a sense of rapture or refreshment. And you're still engaged in directed thought and evaluation as you're trying to get things to fit together, the mind and the breath. The image the Buddha gives is of a bathman. Back in those days, they didn't have soap bars. They would have the soap powder that they would mix with water and to make kind of a soap dough that you would then rub over your body. And you, you would make that in the same way that you make bread. You get the flour and you get the water and you mix the two together. Make sure that all of the, the ball of flour has been moistened. There's no point that's unmoistened. In the same way, you try to take the sense of ease and pleasure that you and rapture that you developed and spread it through the whole body, like we're doing today with the going through the different parts of the body. That's the first jhana. Second jhana, okay, everything is really nice. You've got that sense of ease and rapture filling the body. Then you don't have to do so much directed thought and evaluation and just focus in on the sensation of the breath as it is. 
Here the image the Buddha gives is of a lake with a spring that keeps welling up inside. Cool water comes from the spring. So the entire lake is kept cool by the, the water of the spring. And in this case, there's no, you don't have to consciously work through patterns of tension. You don't have to release tension. It's every, all the channels are open and you just allow the sense of pressure, pleasure and rapture to fill the body. The fourth jhana, things calm down. And Buddha says at that point that the rapture gets too much. And so you just focus on the pleasure of being with that one object. And the image he gives, again, the sense of pleasure without rapture fills the whole body. The image he gives here is of lotuses growing up in the water. They, they don't grow out of the water, but they're in the water. They're totally immersed in the water. And they're saturated with water from the roots to their tips. But it's all very still. And finally, in the fourth jhana, even the breath grows still. The mind is still, the breath is still. And this sense of awareness filling the whole body. Here the Buddha says it's like a person sitting still wearing a covered with white cloth that the cloth covers his entire body. And in these analogies that the Buddha gives, okay, in the first one, you actually have a conscious agent who's working the, the water through the, the flower. Uh, otherwise, water in, in all three, all the images stands for pleasure. Movement stands for rapture. And so finally you get to the final state, okay, where everything is very still. And it was from that fourth level of, of jhana that the Buddha then developed the skills that led to, led to his awakening. So that's right concentration. Those are the eight factors of the path. You'll notice that the first two have to do with wisdom or discernment. The next three have to do with virtue. And the last three have to do with concentration. Now, as I said earlier, there, there's a double duty with regard to the path. First, you have to develop it, and then you abandon it as in the image of the raft. And be, be careful not to abandon it too fast. Make sure that you actually have developed it. So it does is it can do its job, which is to help you overcome your passion for craving. So that you can develop the, this, this passion for craving. The Buddha talks about two ways of developing the factors of the path. One of them is you develop in order. You start with right view from right view, we work on right resolve. Realize, okay, I'm suffering because of things I'm, I'm doing. I've got to work on my intentions as to what kind of actions I want to do. And then you apply that resolve to your speech, to your physical actions, to your livelihood. In doing that, you begin to realize the important thing here is my state of mind, is the intention. I've got to work on my intentions. And that's when you start working with right effort, which is focused on states of mind, so that you get the mind from its normal state into a more mindful state and from mindfulness into concentration. That's one way you develop the path. Then of course, with that concentrated mind, then your discernment gets sharpened. So it almost acts like a circle. There's another way in which the Buddha says, with each of the path factors, you have to have right view and right effort and right mindfulness around each factor. In other words, say with right resolve, you realize you have the right view as to what counts as right resolve and what counts as wrong resolve then you are mindful to develop right resolve and to abandon wrong resolve. Notice your mindfulness is not just accepting. It's keeping in mind, I've got to do this. And then right effort is what actually does the work. But even in this case, right views comes first again. So it directs your activities. However, there are other ways in which the Buddha analyzed this. As I noted just now, you can divide these, eight, these factors into three types. 
virtue, concentration, and discern, well, discernment, virtue, and concentration. But oftentimes the Buddha would talk about working virtue, concentration, and discernment. Let's sum in a different order. Which points to the fact that your discernment, you start out with a sort of rudimentary sense of right view. And as you actually put things into practice, your understanding of what's skillful and what's not skillful is going to get more refined. And that sort of informs your right view, which makes things, brings things to a higher and higher level. This is reflected in the fact that Buddha says there are three types of discernment. There's the discernment that comes from listening. You listen and you learn things from what you listen. There's the discernment that comes to thinking things through. And we'll talk about that after the Q&A session, next Q&A session. And then finally, there's the discernment that comes from developing. As you develop the path, your discernment matures. So the path, path, path factors influence one another, help one another grow. So those are the four noble truths. <laughs> so with the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, um, pain, stress, is that it's in the clinging to the aggregates. We cling because of our craving. Um, we are going to put an end to suffering by abandoning that craving and then the path of for the path, the eightfold path is the means by which we abandon that craving. So that's how they all fit together. The duties, as I said, to comprehend suffering, to abandon its cause, to realize its cessation, and to develop its the path to its cessation. And then you let everything go. So are there any questions? What have I been saying so far? Hopefully. Hopefully, okay. Robes are not designed for mics. <laughs> yes. Did I understand you right, Ajahn? You said, I forgot last year. Forgive me. So that it's the, the path is the path to ending a craving. Mm -hmm. That's it? Yep. Yeah, it, it's like, it's like Interstate 84 goes to Multnomah Falls. But there's a lot more there than just Multnomah Falls. <laughs> Wait, but that's, that's how you attack the problem. You attack it at the cause. Back when I was a layperson, I was teaching English. <laughs> I told you. Teaching English at Chiang Mai University, and I had I had I was teaching an English composition course, and most of the students were social science majors. And so I said, "Okay, we're going to use the Buddha's way of analyzing social science problems. You identify the problem, and then you identify the cause, and then you attack the cause. You attack the problem at the cause, and not at the result." So I gave an example. There was a story that appeared in the newspapers. This group of wives of high-ranking government officials went, happened to go out to a very poor part of Thailand and they visited this school and the kids lined up in front of the school and they looked so sad with their raggedy clothes and so the, the the ladies provided school uniforms for them I think that's attacking the problem at that the result not at the cause 
So this is the Buddha's approach. Okay, you're, you're suffering because of the craving, so you've got to attack the craving. And the next section will be, as we go into what, what exactly is about the path that attacks the craving. And the lady next to you had her hand up. Asking myself, what's the difference in practice? So I, I understood first noble truth. There is suffering. No, 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 no. Yesterday, that's not tonight. There isn't. That isn't the first noble truth. The first noble truth is that there is suffering from clinging. Suffering, clinging is a suffering. And then the second is clinging because of craving. Right. So how are clinging and craving? Okay, there are the two words also have other meanings. Craving has the meaning of to be of thirsting after something. You're thirsting after something. And clinging is you're actually feeding on something. Okay, craving, the word dunha in Pali, can also mean to thirst. Thirst. Right. And upadana, which is the word for clinging also means to feed. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So if I'm understanding correctly, the aggregates are synonymous with clinging? No, there, it is possible to have the aggregates without clinging. Okay. Otherwise, arahants would disappear. <laughs> in fact, there was actually someone wrote a PhD thesis on how the Buddha defined suffering as the five aggregates. And as we all know, the five aggregates cover all of your experience. So basically, the Buddha is saying experience is suffering. That doesn't make sense. Maybe he's not talking about suffering after all. Maybe he's just talking about experience. Now, there's a big missing piece to that puzzle. The Buddha didn't find, define cling, suffering as the aggregates. It was, it was the clinging aggregates, aggregates with clinging, which is a different issue entirely. They're dukkha in the sense that they're stressful. But we're also going to make a path out of the five aggregates. There is a difference between dukkha in three characteristics and dukkha in the, in the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha in the three characteristics is just the way things are because they're conditioned. Whereas dukkha in the Four Noble Truths is the suffering that we add on top of that because of our craving. And the Buddha's insight was if you get rid of that second, that just that amount of, that amount of your, your input into things, then the mind doesn't have to suffer from the fact that you know, this, this rug is stressful or this this microphone is stressful. John Suat once asked a question, a group of lay people were sitting around and he said, we, the, mount, the, the monastery is across the valley from Mount Palomar. He said, that mountain over there, is it heavy? You know, when a, and, a, and then John asked a question like this, you gotta watch out. <laughs> so nobody dared answer. <laughs> and so he gave the answer himself. He said, if you're trying to pick it up, yes, it's heavy, but if you don't pick it up, it's not heavy on you. 
And that's the distinction between dukkha in the three characteristics and dukkha in the four noble truths. Dukkha in the four noble truths is you're trying to pick up the mountain. Yes. In uh, Dukkha using the four noble truths as a, as a tool, and we have a question here. How does Ajahn recommend we distribute the time between meditation and Dhamma study and discussion? Oof. A little bit of study and discussion, a lot of meditation. I can't get precise numbers. <laughs> but I found in my own case, it's more a more question of you're practicing for a while and you realize, you, okay, I don't need to learn anymore from the books. I just need to practice more. And then you hit a point where you say, look, I really need to get some more input from outside, in which case you start looking at the books again. So it's never going to be a steady set of percentages, but it's going to, going to be more of emphasis of, okay, I've learned enough that I have now I have to realize I have to put that into practice before I'm going to get to my next set of questions. Mm -hmm. Then you get to your next set of questions and you say, before I practice more, I've got to figure certain problems out. Yes. You had mentioned white livelihood mm -hmm. and the butchering of animals being not a skillful way to make your livelihood. And you also mentioned soldiers mm -hmm. and you know, soldiers killing and that not being the right livelihood mm -hmm. as well. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are in relation to eating animals and or also being a person who's being protected. In the precepts, we're responsible for what we do and what the orders we give to other people to do. And if you want to go beyond that, that's fine. I'm not going to say, okay, I'm not going to eat animal flesh at all. But in terms of the precepts, those are the only two things that you're focused on. And in Thailand, you know, the Kubajans, they would bless soldiers. I had to bless a destroyer one time. The Thai Navy was feeling flush with cash back in the 90s, and so they bought an American destroyer. They went up to Seattle. They picked up the destroyer where it was being kept in mothballs. They brought it down here to Portland to get it fixed and everything. And then they brought it down to San Diego. And they brought in some more, some more sailors to learn how to run the destroyer. And one of our supporters is a Thai woman who is always in touch with the Thai military when they come to San Diego. And so she brought some of the, the sailors up to the monastery to meditate. And then after a while, then the ship captain came up to the monastery. And before they left for Thailand, they said, um, could you bless the destroyer? <laughs> so I went to the destroyer. And um, their main concern was the boiler. Because the Taiwanese Navy had bought one of these and the, the boiler had blown, blown up and killed two sailors. So I, the first thing I had to do was go down and bless the boiler. And then we took me around to the rest of the ship and finally got to the torpedoes. And so I said, may you never harm anybody. <laughs> More questions? Uh, question here online. Could we hear again um, how or what consciousness is like in Nibbana? 
Because the analogy, as I said, is like as a light beam that doesn't land anywhere. You think about outer space, it's filled with light beams, but to us it looks dark, right? Because the light beams are going through without being reflected. The same way they say that you cannot locate you know, the consciousness of a person who's, who's gained awakening, but that doesn't mean it's not there. As far as they're concerned, they're just as bright as any other light beam or brighter. But there's no, they don't land on anything. There is a, there's a, one of the things I didn't mention was that they say that such a person is released everywhere, which means that you are, there's no location where you are attached. There is no sense of location in the mind of an awakened person. Of course, for us, for us, we locate ourselves through our cravings. Yes. Um, questions about renunciation. So, so for example, there's like a meal I really like. Is that necessarily a craving? Is it required that I do that? It really depends on how much of an impact it has on your mind. And you see this among monks in, in, in Thailand. Some monks are able to live in monasteries and you gain awakening in a monastery. Or other monks, as, as long as they stay in the monastery, they just can't get their act together. They have to go out in the forest and feel challenged before they're ready to, get, to give up those attachments. And so this is going to be a personal matter. Because the Buddha doesn't say all, all central pleasures are bad. It's just that this this fixation on fantasizing about these things, that's your problem. So he, he says the guideline is, if by indulging a particular pleasure, you find that your mind is not deteriorating, okay, then it's okay. But if you find that it is deteriorating, you've got to, you've got to abandon it. question about um, what is, or could you clarify the difference between bodily, verbal, and mental fabrication, sankara, and bodily, verbal, and mental action, karma? Okay, as I said a little bit earlier, the terms for bodily, verbal, and mental fabrication have different meanings in different contexts. In the context of meditation, you know, bodily fabrication is the breath, verbal fabrication is direct thought and evaluation. Metal fabrication is perception and feeling. In the context of actions that lead to rebirth, bodily fabrication is any bodily action, verbal fabrication, any verbal action, intentional action. And mental fabrication is any intentional mental action. And if they're skillful, they will lead to good rebirths. If they're not skillful, they'll lead to bad. If they're mixed, they'll lead to mixed. And the, the, the connection is that what you're seeing in the meditation is the, is the germ for each of those kinds of actions. If you're going to do any bodily action, it starts with your breath. Any verbal action is going to start with directed thought and evaluation. Even just creating a sentence in your mind, that's directed thought and evaluation. And then any mental action has to start with feeling and perception. This is my question now. Ajahn, hmm. when you were saying, and I remember you saying this, any bodily action starts with the breath. 
interesting view that you can certainly express I can withhold or delay any any physical any any physical action I wanted to do. Any intentional action I wanted to do. It's a lot of chances you can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Each time you breathe in and breathe out, you've got a chance to do something skillful. Or a chance to do something unskillful if you want. <laughs> it's kind of scary. Isn't it? yeah. <laughs> it's making you responsible. Um, Ajahn, as, as part of my job now, I have to do a, a lot more negotiating with other people. And um, it's, it's an interesting process in that I often don't have. All, all the information and I'm sort of making decisions. Mm -hmm. My team is making decisions based on partial information. All sorts of perceptions come to my mind as I'm doing it. Oh, am I being taken advantage of? Oh, am I being nice enough? You know, and, and those seem useful a bit, but not very useful to always sort of be like, oh, I always have to see myself as nice. It's not useful in that sort of sense. I wonder if there is a perception that's worth pulling in in these times when I like let's find a mutual we can all win here is there is there something that could be held to that could keep me that that's the ideal uh, the ideal way of negotiating is to say how can how can every party win what yeah. I don't want to have to have one side beat the other side how can we all work together now if it turns out it's not going to work that there actually will have to be somebody pushing or shoving, then you have to ask yourself, okay, which Greg is the Greg I want to play right now? Am I going to play the nice Greg or am I going to play the, you know, the sharp businessman Greg? Yeah, it's particularly up for me now because, um, as I mentioned last night, I'm in a situation where I think we've given enough, mm -hmm. but someone's pushing me pretty hard to give more. Mm -hmm. I think I just have to say no, even mm -hmm. though it doesn't feel nice oh you don't have to be nice all the time if you're nice all the time they just walk all over you yeah do you have any member of your family who, who's good at being not nice <laughs> no. no i, I was thinking of calling in your sister but i was thinking just kind of channeling your sister <laughs> I have an older brother who can, who can fly off the handle really quickly. Yeah. And there have been a couple of cases in the monastery where I've had to channel my older brother. These, we, we get these visitors who are a little bit crazy and they try to take advantage of you. And so I have, I have to sort of get in their face. Yeah. So you're purposely channeling someone who you've seen act sort of unskillfully? I wouldn't say unskillfully, but is assertive. Yeah, we had this crazy guy come one time, and I didn't realize he was on drugs until after I'd given him permission to stay for a week. And being was okay, this guy is on something. So at the end of seven days, I said, okay, you know, your seven days are up. Said, oh, I've only been here three days. He said, no, it's been seven. You're lying. If I'm lying, I'm a very bad person to be around. You better go. <laughs> <laughs> He kind of backed off. <laughs> he went down to the kitchen. Has Don Jeff ever hit anybody? <laughs> so yeah, just think of somebody who's a little bit more assertive and say, look, well, I've given you enough. 
anything more than this is outrageous. And if that sort of blows up that relationship, then the Soviet. Well, is that a relationship you wanted to keep? That's what my sister said. <laughs> <laughs> I begin to see a pattern here. <laughs> No, we, there's my, my brother and sister-in-law had a friend from Germany and I happened to visit one time and she said, I said, what was your childhood like together? Because we were just so very different. And just trying, she was trying to imagine us growing up together. And I said, what, what childhood games did you play? And I said, basically hundred and hundred. <laughs> my brother said, oh, come on. It wasn't hundred and hundred. It was cop, cowboy and Indians and cops and robbers. It's hundred and hundred. <laughs> His complaint was that as I was always good at slipping away. He always had to be pinned down and I found some way to slip away. So. <laughs> but I also learned how to channel him when need be. Yes. Um, to the gentleman's point, it brought up that question in my mind about question, that goal of always being truthful. Mm -hmm. and, um, and what I appreciate is is when I witness someone being truthful, mm -hmm. maybe even if it's a play on words, but speaking to truth, your mm -hmm. example mm -hmm. of, well, if I am yeah. lying, I'm not a reliable person. And perhaps in this situation or others, I guess I would love to hear more about those challenging situations where the truth can be painful, either mm -hmm. for the giver or the receiver, and just any thoughts on how one wrestles or practices. Okay, well, you have to decide is, does this person really need to know this truth? And there are times when they really do need to know it. And it's going to be painful, but you've got to give it. Um, there is a, for a good sutta to read on right speech is Majjama 58. It's where the, this prince has been put up to ask a quick, trick question of the Buddha. Would the Buddha ever say anything displeasing? And the, the, the there was a trick question because on the one hand, if he said that, yes, he would say something displeasing, they would say, well, what's the difference between you and the ordinary person in the market? And if he said he wouldn't say something displeasing, they already had him on record of saying some things that, about David Dada that David Dada didn't like. So they thought they had him. And so the prince asked the question and the Buddha says, well, there's no categorical answer to that question. And the prince realized, okay, the Buddha has slipped out. And then the Buddha gives an example. Excuse me. The prince had his baby son lying on his, on his lap. He said, suppose your baby son got a sharp object in his mouth, what would you do? The prince says, well, I would hold his head with one hand and use my finger with the other hand to get the object out, even if it drawing blood. Why is that? Because otherwise the child could hurt itself more. The Buddha said in the same way, there are circumstances are out of compassion, you have to say the displeasing thing. Now you say it with respect, you don't show contempt for the other person, but you have to show, you know, but you say, okay, they may not like this, but this is the truth. They've got to know it. So in, in this case, you would say, anything you would say had to pass three tests. One, is it true? If it's not true, don't say it. If it's true, then the second question is, is it beneficial? And to, okay, if it passes those two, then the next question is, is this the time and place for something to say something pleasing or something displeasing? And you have a sense of time and place, which then you go ahead and say it. We have five more minutes before break. Any more questions? Yes. 
So you were talking earlier about sort of four steps to take to um, change your behavior. And there was an origination, cessation, um, allure, the allure, drawbacks, right, drawbacks, and then the escape. And so that, you know, like that makes so much sense. I mean, while you're saying it, I felt a bit of release. So I can imagine, you know, bring that process to work. I'm sure I already have the ways. But I can also imagine times where I feel like I have all four of those steps in place, but I still do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So what, what's most likely to be missing? Okay, in either case of you didn't catch it when it really arose. Because sometimes the mind is like, it's like they're secret members of the committee that you're they're sort of aware of, but you pretend that you're not aware of, and they've made a decision. I mean, you see this in meditation, the decision but put in place. Next time he's, there's a slip in mindfulness, we're going. And it just waits for the slip in mindfulness and they're gone. Other, in other cases where we haven't seen it actually pass away, um, as far as the allure, this, this is the one that's really tricky. There are many times we're not really honest with ourselves about why we like something. There may be the allure of something we're embarrassed about, even we're embarrassed to admit to ourselves. And then the last one, of course, okay, the drawbacks haven't really hit home. So you have to look at each, each one of those. Okay, where am I missing it? Two experiences while you were talking. Um, one was in meditation, and you said, um, you know, imagine that your breath is working. Mm -hmm. And I had a sense of ease come over me as I, I did do that, and then I had a sense of bodily ease come over. And then also, same thing when you define renunciation as. What's, what's happening there? It, it was very helpful. And um, is it the voice of another? Is it just, is that a fabrication? <clears throat> it's um, one is the voice of another person offering this as a possibility. And then you're saying, hey, that is a good possibility. And you take it. And you, let, you allow yourself to let go of something that you didn't, may not have realized you're holding on to. So it's a combination of both the voice of another person giving you permission or pointing out possibilities. And this is a lot of why we listen to the Dharma is to have possibilities pointed out to us that we had blocked off. And then allowing yourself to follow through. Yeah. 